All right, well, uh, good morning, everybody. My name is uh, Reggie, and this morning we'll be finishing out our time in Hebrews chapter, well, in the book of Hebrews with Hebrews chapter um, 13. Over the past several weeks and months here at Redemption, we've been moving through uh, the book of Hebrews, and we, like I said, we're coming to a close. And over the next couple of weeks or the next few weeks, we'll have some um, stuff specific to Redemption Church and some things that we're about uh, before this summer moving into the book of Ecclesiastes, which was Ben's idea, but I'm fully supportive of it and uh, looking forward to it. Um, but I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we'll go from there. God, thank you for the opportunity for us to, to be together this morning. God, thank you for Jesus who, who sets us apart as your own and joins us together as a family. Thank you, God, that it's because of the work of Jesus that we're able to gather as a family this morning. God, over the next few minutes as we look at the Hebrews 13 and see what you have to say for your church there, God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds, that you would speak to us what you would have us here. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance. So God, I pray that we would hear from you. Pray that we would be moved by you, that Jesus would be lifted high and we'd be drawn to you. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We've said this a couple of times over the past few weeks and months, but the working theory for the book of Hebrews is that it was originally a singular sermon that was adapted into a letter and sent to a group of early Jewish Christian believers, probably in the area of Rome, that were dealing with some uh, very real persecution and harassment. Some of those believers, because of that very real persecution and harassment, were probably tempted to walk away from the faith. Maybe to go back to their old ways of worship, because there was comfort in those old ways, and maybe because doing so would take them out of the bullseye of that harassment and persecution. This letter would have probably been read aloud to those believers when they gathered together in their house churches or wherever they might have been. It's estimated that it would take about an hour to read the book of Hebrews aloud if you were to just start and read through aloud from start to finish. Who knows how much longer it would have taken if there was any type of interaction, questions being asked, things like that. But for an hour straight, these believers would have been hearing what I consider to be, uh, quite often through the book of Hebrews, a singular note. A singular note. And the singular note being this, Jesus is better in every way, so cling to Jesus. Throughout the book of Hebrews, you have this incredibly um, like high theological Christology about Jesus presented, about how great Jesus is. And so the argument all along the way is Jesus is better in every way from anything you've ever known before. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything you've been waiting for. So trust Jesus, count on Jesus, place your faith in Jesus. You hear that over and over and over in the book of Hebrews. All along the way, Jesus is better Hold fast to the message of Jesus. Don't drift away from Jesus, right? Boldly draw near to God because of Jesus. 
stand up and run the race and endure and hold up under whatever you're going through because of Jesus. It's been repetitive throughout the book. Like the point of the sermon that we know as the book of Hebrews up until now has been Jesus is better, so trust Jesus. The point has been to draw these hearers to faith in Jesus. Then we get to chapter 13, and in some way, chapter 13 of Hebrews feels different than what has come before up until this point in the first 12 chapters of this book. And it would be easy to make the mistake of coming to chapter 13, and if we're not careful, thinking that what is presented in chapter 13 is not dependent on everything that's come from Hebrews chapter 1 through 12. It would be easy to make that mistake. And if we're not careful, we would assume that chapter 13 is calling us as believers, calling those believers and us as believers to just do better and try harder and do these things in the race that you're running. But I don't want us to make that mistake this morning because chapter 13 of Hebrews really makes no sense without everything that's come before it up until that point. Unless we first ingested the call to trust Jesus, unless we first encountered this call to turn to Jesus, unless we first been willing to hear and to put our faith in Jesus, then chapter 13 is easily misunderstood. You see, in the Christian life, I believe this is true, that being always precedes doing. Another way to say it is that God is always antecedent. He works first and we respond. He acts before we act. We only act because God himself has already acted on our behalf. His working in some ways is the cause of which our willing to act is the effect. And so as we dive into chapter 13, which is an incredibly practical chapter when compared to the rest of Hebrews, I want us to do so with the understanding that the call to act in this chapter follows the call to believe that has been presented for 12 chapters up until this point, right? The, it follows the call to believe and to trust and to, and to put our faith in Jesus. We've heard that for 12 chapters. Now is the action that follows that faith. With that said, we're going to take chapter 13 in three movements. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And then verses 7 through 19, and then verses 20 through 25. Um, I think that looking at the chapter in those parts best um, shows us the movement of thought of the author through this last chapter of 13. That's why I want to take it that way. But I will say this before we start. In the first 19 verses of this chapter, depending on how you break them apart, there are about 12 direct admonitions to do something. And then from verses 20 through 25, um, those verses sort of act like a benediction that calls these believers to remember and believe something. So in the first 19 verses, there's a call to bear with the author's words of admonition and exhortation. That's the exact language that's used in verse 22 to refer to the whole sermon of Hebrews, but it fits well with these uh, first 19 verses as well. And then in verses 20 through 25, there's a call to remember and to believe something about God. But first, verses one through six, let me read them for us. Let brotherly love continue. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What we see here in the first five verses of chapter uh, 13 are some very common admonitions that are seen throughout the New Testament to churches in different letters. In verse 1, there's a call to love one another. I think we all should recognize that. Um, There's no doubt about that one. In verse 2, there's a a call to show hospitality, especially to strangers, and that's the uh, exact idea here. The the exact idea here is of opening your home and your resources for the benefit of others. There's also this unusual talk about um, entertaining angels unaware. The author is probably alluding back to Genesis 18, where Abraham and Sarah did that very, thir- did that very thing. Uh, in verse 3, there's a call to remember those in prison. Lots of early believers spent time in prison, and their care was dependent upon the generosity of their friends and family. In verse 4, there's an admonition to keep your marriage vows. In Roman society, especially for men, there were all sorts of ways to get around your marriage vows. And so the early church was pretty adamant about marriages being different than those of society around. And then in verse 5 and 6, there's a call to avoid greed and to be content with God's provision. Ultimately, because God is the one who cares and provides. With all that said, here's what I see in verses 1 through 5 or one through six. It's a call to to bear the truth, to believe the truth that Jesus is better in the everyday nitty-gritty stuff of life. When life gets real hard and people are struggling, love one another. When people show up and interrupt your schedules, show hospitality. When your fellow believers are in need, when they are experiencing the injustices of the world, and the society around them, remember them because you're a part of the body with them and show up for them and pray for them. When your marriage is in a rough spot, keep your vows. When it doesn't seem like God is giving you enough, trust that his provision is what you need, right? Verses one through six are all about the nitty gritty stuff of everyday life. Bear these exhortations, believe these things, even in the midst of, of a difficult life in the everyday nitty-gritty stuff. If we look, move on and look at verses 7 through 19, let me read those. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as, they will, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The set of verses is a little more convoluted. A lot more stuff is packed into it. And if verses one through five represent a call to bear the truth that Jesus is better than the everyday stuff of life, then verses seven through 19 represent um, a call to bear the truth that Jesus is better within the community of faith and within the life of the church itself. Verses seven and eight are a call to remember and imitate the leaders in the church that have come and gone already. Maybe they're gone due to death. Maybe they've been imprisoned. Maybe they're gone for other reasons, but it's a call to imitate their faith. And ultimately, because Jesus is the same always, their faithfulness is something to be repeated and replicated and serve as an example for the believers that come after. Then verses 9 through 14 take a turn um, for a moment, but it seems there was some type of teaching in this church, maybe going back to Old Testament ways of eating, that maybe dealing with Old Testament feast or, or whatever it might be, but some type of teaching that was happening in this church that was tying faith to food. So the author here is instead pointing people to Jesus for their faith. Jesus has all the grace you need, he says in here. And so even though you may have to turn away from some of these old ways of worship, or even though you may suffer reproach from not continuing to do this thing with food, Jesus too suffered reproach outside the gate. And like Jesus, you too can bear this. You too can turn to Jesus instead of this other thing that is going on. And he talks about looking for an, a, a lasting city, looking to something better, looking something better to what, than what is happening right then and there. Verses 15 and 16 then turn back, right, to this idea of worship within the community of faith as being both acknowledging Jesus and doing good, like a life of worship and a life of service. These are the sacrifice that God wants within the community. Then in verse 17, there's this call to follow the current leaders in the community of faith. And it's a call to exist within the community of faith in such a way that it brings joy to the leaders of the church to watch over you. And it's a call to the leaders of the church to recognize the seriousness of the role for which they will have to give an account. And then finally in verses 18 through 19, the author is asking them to pray for him. They might be able to come into this fellowship physically, 
to be a part of this community of faith. Those 13 verses are all over the place about what it means and what it looks like to, um, to believe that Jesus is better and to live like Jesus is better within the community of faith. And there are multiple admonitions within them. But what ties them all together is this call to believe and act that Jesus is better. To live in such a way within the community of faith that demonstrates that Jesus is better. Whether it's in the imitation of those that have gone before, whether it's in uh, serving and doing good, whether it's in recognizing um, that Jesus is where we to go for grace and not these other things that might have been going on. Whatever it is, the call here is to recognize that within the community of faith, Jesus is always better. So bear up under these admonitions because Jesus is better. Now, the last section of verses are some of my favorite verses in the book of Hebrews, especially verses 20 and 21. Throughout this series, we've used verse 20 and 21 as a benediction quite often, um, like I said, as we've gone along. But I love these verses, verses 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. It's quite humorous that the author says he's written them briefly. I don't think the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is brief at all. It's quite dense. Um, the Timothy that he's referring to there is probably the Timothy that we know throughout the New Testament. But last week, uh, Ben referenced an illustration about the Ironman triathlon that happens here in Augusta every year. He referenced that illustration to help us uh, better understand the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. But he talked in that illustration about how we as a church are out there uh, serving the runners and the, and the people racing, out there cheering on the con contestants, uh, giving them water and ice and all these other things as they run the race that is set before them. Right, and like the, like the saints of the past surround believers as a great cloud of witnesses cheering them on, that's what we're out there doing, cheering on these uh, people as they're racing and attempting to create, I mean, attempting to complete the Ironman triathlon. In contrast, though, part of what Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 25 is telling us is this. God himself is not a cheerleader. If the writer of Hebrews is calling these believers to faith, if he's calling them to bear his words of exhortation and to pursue Jesus and to live in such a way that demonstrates how Jesus is better. God himself is not just standing off to the side of our lives and yelling loudly for us to try harder and to run faster and to do better. Right? Make no mistake about it. God's not a cheerleader. God's not a coach who at most can tell us how to run better. God is not there just to cheer us on or to tell us how we can do this thing better. God is doing far more than that. 
And that's what Hebrews 20 and 21 are talking, or 13, 20 and 21 are talking about here. It is God who the, through the work of Jesus, the power of the resurrection and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that empowers you and I beyond what we are naturally and normally capable of doing when it comes to living a life of faith. It is God himself who is empowering his people to do what the writer of Hebrews is admonishing them and exhorting them to do. God quite literally lives in us to sustain our hearts and to enlighten our minds and to strengthen our will to run the race that is set before us. This passage, especially the benediction in verse 20 through 21, let me read it again. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This passage is designed to remind us that God does not expect us to do this thing on our own. Jesus didn't die on a cross and rise from the dead and set us apart for him and set us on mission for him just for him to say, now you're on your own. Go do the best you can. Hope you can last. Not only has God saved us and defeated our greatest enemies through Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that God has and is very literally equipping us toward what he's called us to do. And that is such good news. The God of peace will equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Such good news. The main blessing that the author of Hebrews is announcing on these original believers in this church and pronouncing on us is that God will equip you and I with everything that we need in order to live the life that he's called us to live. It is God who calls us to live a life that demonstrates that Jesus is better. And it is God who graciously equips his people to live in that way. This means that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is doing the work to supply you with the resources that you need in order to do what he calls you to do. And that is such incredible good news. The writer of Hebrews all along the way has been calling these believers to faith, to not turn away, to stand up, to endure, to run the race. And then in chapter 13 here, he gives these believers very like practical ways to do that within the community of faith to show that Jesus is better. And then he closes the chapter, he closes the letter by reminding them that it is God himself who is equipping you to do all of these things that I have called you to do, even to put your faith in God. It's important to see here, though, that the writer of Hebrews is not simply calling these believers to sit idly by, nor is he calling us to sit idly by, twiddling our thumbs, passively waiting for something to happen or for some inner urge stirs us to act in some way. 
he is saying quite the opposite of that. He is saying, bear these words of exhortation. Get up and do the things that I've admonished you to do. Love one another. Show hospitality. Remember those in prison. Stand up for the downtrodden and those treated unjustly. Keep your marriage vows. Be content with what God has provided you. Be a part of your community of faith in a way that proves that Jesus is better. Avoid strange teachings. Bear the reproach of others like Jesus did. Be a joy to your fellow believers. Pray for your fellow believers and leaders. We might say, serve in children's ministry. Take food to those in your missional communities that are having a hard time. Greet strangers at the door with the love of Christ. Take somebody to lunch. Do all those things because God is quite literally working in you to equip you to do his will, to live a life that is pleasing in his sight. All along the way, don't turn away from Jesus. Jesus is better. Don't fall away. Endure because Jesus is better. Jesus has endured. You can endure. Do these things. Get up and do these things because God himself is literally equipping you to do them. It's often extremely easy within the life of the church to throw our hands up in the air and give up and say things like, I can't do this, it's too much for me, I'm too weak, I'm too frail, I'm too selfish, I'm too whatever. The author of Hebrews knows that. I wonder if the author of the, Hebrew, of the book of Hebrews actually felt that at times too. But that's exactly why verses 20 through 21 are such incredibly good and encouraging news. These verses tells us that God knows it too, that it's hard for us. And that's why he reminds us here that whatever he has required of us, especially what we see here in the book of Hebrews... Whatever he's required of us, he provides. Whatever he commands us to do, he equips us to do. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us at the very end of it all. After this entire time of calling these believers to faith and then telling them to live in such a way that demonstrates that Jesus is better, he's saying God is going to equip you with the same power that brought Jesus from the dead. The God who brought Jesus from the dead will equip you to do exactly what he's called you to do. That is such good news. The reality of what we find throughout the book of Hebrews is a call to see and to believe and to act in light of the fact that Jesus is better. In the Old Testament, the psalmist would probably put it another way. The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. But for us, sometimes it's hard to believe that, right? Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that the Lord is good because the stuff of life gets in the way. And sometimes it's hard for us to even grasp what it would mean for us to live this way because at times it seems like maybe we're just talking about imaginary situations during a Sunday morning sermon. Or maybe we're missing opportunities during the week because of the stuff of life. Or maybe we do recognize opportunities during the week to live in such a way that demonstrates that Jesus is better, but we're just unwilling to believe it and to bear it. As Ben put it to me this week, we were talking about this idea where God says to taste and see 
that sometimes we're just like little kids unwilling to try Brussels sprouts or zucchini or something else green because even though we don't know how it'll taste, we're pretty convinced that it's not worth it. So we don't even try. So the call for us this morning is pretty simple as we come to the end of Hebrews. It's a simple call. I would ask you to identify one thing One thing this week where you can try to see if Jesus is better, no matter if it feels risky or inconvenient. Maybe it's showing hospitality to a stranger. Maybe it's visiting someone in prison or in need. Maybe it's just showing up at an MC. Maybe it's taking food to someone who's struggling. Maybe it's setting aside some time to just be content with what God has provided But I would urge you to pick one thing where maybe you're not believing that Jesus is better and get up and do it anyway, knowing that God is good, knowing that God will equip you, knowing that God hasn't left you out there to figure it all out on your own. The whole book of Hebrews is a call to believe that Jesus is better and to put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And chapter 13 turns very practical to the nitty-gritty stuff of life and the nitty-gritty stuff of church. And at the end of it all, the writer of Hebrews says, I've called you to faith in Jesus. I've called you to trust Jesus. I've called you to these very practical things in your life and in the life of the church. And now I'm reminding you that it is God who will equip you and empower you to do these things. So church, the call for us simply this morning like I said, um, is to believe that. Pick one area of life where we don't truly believe that Jesus is better, and let's just try and see if what God promises is true. I believe that it is. And I believe that God will equip us and enable us in those things that he's called us to. We're gonna enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday at Redemption. During this time of response, it's an opportunity for us to... um, continue to worship. It's an opportunity for us to um, hear and reflect on what it is that God is calling us to this morning. It's a time for us to um, give or to be reminded that God is the provider of all that we have. And so our time of giving, whatever that looks like, is actually a response to, um, to God. It's an act of worship. And it's a time for us to join together and take communion. We take communion every Sunday at Redemption um, as a visible way for us to uh, proclaim that the gospel is true and um, proclaim to one another that the gospel is true and remember it together. Right? We're re- remembering the work of Jesus. We're remembering what Christ has done for us. And we come up here, we come down this middle aisle and we take the bread and dip it in the wine or juice or we take the uh, prepackaged cups. And in taking them, we are remembering that Jesus has done what he said he would do, that Jesus is good, that the gospel is good news. And we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it and that it's true. And so I would invite you to come and take communion if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, whether you're a member of redemption or not. If you can come and remember and proclaim the goodness of Jesus, then I would invite you to do that. I'm gonna pray for us and we'll continue on. God, thank you for this reminder from your word that Jesus is better. God, thank you for this reminder from your word that what you've called us to, you will equip us to do. And God, over the next few minutes as we continue to respond 
whatever ways, however you lead us to respond. And I pray it would be with a continual reminder that Jesus is better. A continual reminder to turn to Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to put our faith in Jesus because Jesus is better. God, knowing that you've done something incredible for us, knowing that you've called us to something, but you haven't left us out there on our own. God, I pray that as we close our time of worship this morning, that Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place and we would be drawn to you because of Christ and Christ alone. Holy Father, we ask this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.